what we believe is entirely up to us. At the end of the day, nothing and no one can make you interpret what you see and perceive as anything other than what you want to believe. What can be complicated, however, is what makes it back into the bank of facts that you use to make those beliefs. Is there any way to make sure what information your senses gather for you is all true and real? What would you do when your senses try to tell you something that seems unbelievable? What invisible string leads you towards your beliefs? Can it be knotted or cut or worse? Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I'm Peyton Zignego with Channel Vale, lifting up that which divides the known from the unknown. Sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. The five senses with which we use to inform our surroundings. Of course, we don't need all five. That's a bit much in most situations anyhow. And naturally, there's no need for all of them, as many people get by with less than five. However, it's when the senses we do have begin to deceive us that we really begin to fall apart. Radio is entirely audio. So right now, you're only being informed by your ears and the sounds of my voice. That's one sense being utilized. Only one sense to fail you. Naturally, I don't control the way other senses you have are informing your world at the moment. I'm working on that, by the way. Imagine, 5D radio. But I, I guess then that's no longer radio. Hey Nadia, can we please investigate that down the line? Make a note of it? 5D radio. <laughs> ah, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> we have an innate trust in our senses. They're the only ways we can inform ourselves of what's happening around us. They can be tricked and lied to, and when this happens, what are we to trust? If what we perceive is impossible to believe, what else is there to turn to, when the things we use to determine what is truthfully going around feel as though they can't be trusted themselves, is there anything left to use? Today we've got reports to bring you that call perceptions into question. Sights and sounds and taste, all of which was bent to the will of a dark unknown force outside of our interviewer's control. Early this week, field reporter Nadia received a station telephone call which informed her of a meeting happening between some friends, who had all planned on sharing ghost stories of some variety. They assumed this fell into our line of work and invited our team over for dinner to hear what they all had to say. Seemed like a meeting of the minds sort of situation, and they more so wanted to brag about how intelligent they all were. But ghost stories? Hard to pass up. Especially considering the possible bounty of reports for us to gather. I had to say that I was certainly excited to attend. Trusty notebook in hand, Nadia and I headed out for a night of dinner and ghastly excitement at the home of a man named Andrew Culwin. I have to say that it was a little lackluster as far as ghost stories go. They mainly fell into the category of middle school tales meant to spook each other, as opposed to true tales of terror. I had to scold Nadia quietly after she yawned openly and clearly offended one of the socialites. As much fun as the prospect was, I'll say the experience overall was underwhelming. We were woefully out of our element. At least, I thought so. 
As the evening wound down and some of the guests began to head out, Nadia and I were left with our host, Colwyn, and a man who had introduced himself as Phil Frenham. Phil was very nice, but as Nadia pointed out in her notes for the evening, not the best storyteller. As an aside, at this point we had settled into the belief that we were not going to get any actual reports from all of this. Phil noticed, as Nadia and I had, that our host, Mr. Colwyn, had declined to share a ghost story of any form, despite asking it of all his guests. It took a bit of digging, but eventually he managed to worm a story out of the older man. And finally, Nadia and I were right back into our place. Let me tell you, the speed with which our little report notebooks were out was an impressive feat of journalism. Not to brag heavily about our skills. First, Mr. Colwyn shared that he had not one, but two ghosts that haunted in his past. Which, I mean, come on, score! Two ghosts for the price of one is a mouth-watering proposition for someone that works entirely with the supernatural. Mr. Colwyn's tale began after he returned to New York from a long stint traveling abroad. He shared that he was a writer and was planning soon to head out to England to continue his manuscripts. But it was in New York, at his aunt's house, that he met a woman named Alice Noel, a woman he described as simple but kind. He's an older man, so we were letting the way he described her slide a little, though it's not a surprise that Nadia was drawing and showing me angry faces as he spoke. Either way, she was working with him to copy his manuscripts. One night, she pulled him into a kiss, and he ended up proposing that night, saying he'd take her to England with him. A rush job, but he said he felt blissful as he went to bed. It was when he went to bed that night that things took a nosedive into the uncanny, and his senses began to twist upon him like a boa constrictor turning suddenly on its keeper. As he laid in bed, he came to find the room overcome with a chill and a stillness. The room was holding its breath for what was to come, an omen for what lurked in the dark. Frozen Colwyn begins to give into the childlike tendencies to cower under the covers, but instead he overcame that instinct and looked into the dark abyss of his room, coming to find it looked back. A pair of eyes floated unattached from a body in the dark air of his room. With a menacing glow, the eyes stared outwards. According to Mr. Colwyn, the sole witness of this phenomenon, of course, the eyes were an old man's, visible blood vessels etched their way around the bulb, and the eyelids seemed to droop. He knew they were scrutinizing him, and everything he did, though they spoke not, he knew all this, as they watched, unblinking. As an aside, I wondered in post how he could have possibly known how the eyelids of the eye looked if he could only see the bulbs themselves. So I have to imagine the ghastly eyes carved themselves eyelids out of the surrounding darkness, a prospect most unsettling. Further strange, he quickly turned on a light, and they disappeared. When the light went back off, they returned to their post, staring out wordlessly. Mr. Colwyn remained adamant that he was a man of scientific principles, so he made it clear to us that he went through a checklist of every possible physical explanation. It was impossible, he says, for the fireplace to have been reflecting light or carrying embers still burning, as to do so, it would have had to be in a completely different position in the room. As this self-proclaimed man of science went through all possibilities, the eyes stared on, watching his every twitch and shift. With nothing clearly at fault for making the eyes appear, aside from the metaphysical, which I don't think was all too considered at this point, he tried a last-ditch attempt to make them disappear from his mind by picturing the eyes of Alice, the woman he planned to marry. In the morning, he packed a bag and left the house without a word. The eyes did not appear once he'd left. 
Now, though, he was plagued with a deep exhaustion, as if the eyes had drained him of all his energy and fight. Now, instead of facing his fear or communicating anything to the woman he planned to marry, he spent a few nights at a friend's place before packing a bag and getting on a ship to England without a word. Nadia would like me to make a statement that we here at Channel Vale do not condone running from your problems in such a manner that it will leave those you love without explanation. In fact, if you're going to run anywhere, our office doors are always open, even if our security cameras will not warn us of your approach. My tree and outside enrichment is just too much fun. Trying to be a healthy radio host over here, come on now. Despite what we would have done differently, which I'll remind myself does not matter in journalism, he went to England, claiming he slept dreamlessly the entire way. He spent an entire year abroad, never seeing the eyes once. After a year in England, he moved to Rome to continue writing and not seeing the eyes. They lurked in the back of his mind, but never did he see them since the night at his aunt's. It wasn't until he had a visitor come to his door with a letter saying Alice had sent him did the eyes momentarily return to the forefront of his memory. Mr. Colwyn introduced us to his memories of a man named Gilbert Noyes, a man with dreams of writing. Alice had sent him to Colwyn to learn from him as an apprentice of sorts. Mr. Colwyn described him as handsome and someone he quite liked having around. The two allegedly grew quite close after spending almost every hour of every day together for several months. A keynote that Colwyn mentioned to us is that Gilbert was not inclined towards writing in any capacity. Seemed a little rude to point out this poor man's bad writing skills until he was tasked with either telling Gilbert the truth gently and possibly losing him as a companion or lying and keeping him around on a false promise with nothing but rotten foundations to stand on. Mr. Colwyn chose the latter and lied to the man that he'd been denied another publisher. This lie to keep Gilbert around resulted in the eyes returning that night. After roughly two years without them, he felt the room once again grow chilled and frozen still. Feeling their presence before seeing them, he knew what had returned. I felt somewhat bad for Mr. Colwyn at this moment. Sharing that he cared so much about keeping Gilbert around him as a life companion that he put up with the eyes haunting him for months, trying to push them out with thoughts of Gilbert's gentle eyes. Guilt persisted at his growing white lie, as did the presence of the haunting eyes in the dark of the night. At some point, Gilbert got married, and the relationship between the two men grew strained. Mr. Colwyn seemed to believe that because he never told Gilbert the truth, that he could then never accept that his work wasn't getting published. During a fight, Mr. Colwyn finally comes clean about his lies. All this built up for so long that Gilbert simply left without a word and headed back to America. The eyes left with Gilbert, and they never returned in all the years since. Mr. Colwyn said that he didn't know what drew them out or what caused them to appear and reappear. The only link he could see between them was Alice Noel, but he hadn't seen her in several years and she was hardly involved in any other way than sending Gilbert to him. It was as he tried to brainstorm a connection that our other companion for the evening, Phil, began to become visibly frightened. Sensing a story development, we jumped to figure out what had overcome the man, but he just shook in terror, his gaze transfixed on Mr. Colwyn. It was only when the old man stood and made his visage appear in a nearby mirror that we realized what had frightened Phil so. The reflection of Colwyn's eyes matched those of the eyes that had haunted him all those years ago. Phil didn't say another word, just trembled. The evening ended rather quickly after this realization. Our host just receded inside himself, struck with a horrible truth. Poor Phil was clearly knocked out of it and refused to give a statement about any of it 
other than excusing himself and promptly putting his jacket on to leave in a hurry. Nadia and I attempted to get more out of the older man, but he just stared and uttered words under his breath that neither of us could make out. We left soon after Phil. It's clear that mounting guilt was building in the man to make him see something transcending what shouldn't be possible, as if his future haunted his past in moments where he was marking himself for failure. There was a heavy air of judgment and scrutiny that permeated all of his report. Nadia believes that the man was judging his thoughts about Gilbert and his guilt over not loving Alice as he thought he should. Perhaps she's correct, but I seem to err on the side of the idea that he altered his perception with a hidden knowledge that what he was doing was wrong to some degree. Either way you swing it, his mind was a powerful tool in creating a haunting mark on his sights, one that should surely ruin mirrors for the man. His guilt was so strong that it pulled the tides of time from one point to another and made manifestations of himself to haunt him and force upon him a horrible watcher. I think perhaps I should see if I can get one of my scientist types recruited on a project to see if they can amass such a guilt as to recreate this phenomenon. I don't see the harm in trying to recreate things on a scientific level, right? Nadia has gotten up to shake her head at me. Well, I wasn't going to suggest you as a test subject. Not until now, at least. Uh, but the science! We do have a possible specimen collection attempt to begin soon in relation to the next lead we investigated. Okay, unfortunately, it seems I may need to go and reassure Nadia that I will not be subjecting her to manifesting her own visage of guilt on the radio's behalf. I think she's a little frightened that I was considering it. Which I assure you I was not. I can assure you, listening now, that Nadia will only be harmed on the job at her own expense, not mine. I need my field reporter after all. Uh, hang on a moment, I must step away from my desk. Uh, Nadia, I'm coming out there. Returning after these messages, Channel Vale will be right back on WCRX 88.1 FM. Underground Chicago is back, broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, bringing you Channel Vale with your host, Peyton Zignego. That's me, and has always been. Nadia and I talked it out, and we have realized that she would surely be better off not being the subject of thought experiments causing her to create nightmare visions of her own future gaze to watch her at her weakest moments. That would be a very bad move on my part. Additionally, I apparently wrote in her contract, in very clear terms, that she will not be the subject of any experiments conducted by me or scientist types I hire while she works here. Especially, and I quote, experiments that will cause severe mental distress to the point where the gaze of her own eyes causes her to weep in fear. I, I don't recall putting that in her contract, but in retrospect, it was perhaps a good thing for her sake. Apparently, I also put a clause in about not sending her out to the sea in pursuit of voices in the mist, which is eerily close to an investigation I was about to suggest to her after we received a very interesting report. So, unfortunately, no matter how interesting this story may be, I cannot tell field reporter Nadia to go out into the Pacific Ocean in search of the subject of this report. She may, however, go out on her own volition, but I find it hard to believe she will, considering the look I am currently getting. Sometimes I am very glad we have a wall and glass between the host desk and her desk. <laughs> anyway, a day after we got back from our night out, I was approached by someone looking very distressed. This is not uncommon, of course, but they seemed to be desperate for someone to listen to them. I assured the stranger that I will listen to anyone, and invited them into the station for some tea. 
They accepted, and almost began to spill their tail right before I could even get a pen in my hand. The stranger introduced themselves as a sailor, who had just returned from a trip in the northern Pacific. They were frantic when they shared that no one had taken them seriously since they came ashore. And who am I to not take anyone seriously? I bade them to just tell me what was troubling them, and I got, in return, a tale of nautical nightmares that almost tempts me to go out onto an expedition into the abyssal sea. The sailor explained that they'd been watching the seas one night, not a single glimpse of light against the foggy conditions. That is until a voice called from the dark, asking for any supplies they could spare. How could anyone be out there in the middle of the ocean? They went to turn on the light, but the voice in the water screeched and forced them to put it out. Whatever was speaking to the sailor, it didn't want to be seen. All the sailor had to rely on was the sound of the voice and the oars that accompanied it. Upon waking a fellow crew member, the two decided to aid the voice in the mist, sending a basket of resources, much to the delight of their unseen sea companion. According to the voice, he was stranded with his fiancée, who was starving, but that was all the information he gave at that point. After the sailors shared their goods, the voice and the sounds of his vessel paddled off back into the mist and away into the night. They never caught a glimpse of the man. The sailor seemed shaken and paused for a moment. I noted that they seemed to be questioning their own ears at this point. Recounting what they'd heard made them... nervous? I wasn't sure what this emotion was exactly, but I let them take their time. I know whatever I would get next would be worth the wait. And worth it, it was. The sounds of paddling returned a few hours later. The voice was back and apparently ready to share his tale with the sailors. At his own volition, he gave away all he had seen to two strangers without either seeing the other. It was so fascinating a situation, everyone trusting that the other voice they heard in the mist was someone willing to listen. The sailor then gave me the tale of the voice. The voice was a survivor of a sinking ship that they identified as the Albatross. Apparently the pair had been abandoned by a crew of the vessel and only narrowly escaped drowning by crafting a makeshift raft as she sank. They traveled across the sea until they happened upon another ship in a misty lagoon. Upon climbing aboard the vessel, the man found that it was abandoned and devoid of all life aside from a strange mold that grew all around the ship. He and his fiancée decided to stay abroad the vessel for a while, making the best of their situation. They cleaned and made a sort of home on the abandoned ship, getting rid of the mold to the best of their abilities. It seemed to work for a time, but the mold would always reappear, taking over the same places and seeming to always come back with more of itself, growing stronger. According to the sailor's tale, the couple was well stocked with food from the reserves on the ship, but they were eventually chased off by the mold and returned to their raft. Land was nearby, but that too was covered by the growing mold, all but a single strip of the white sand beach. This strip of land was where they made a new camp. I have to say that I admired the resilience of this couple, as the sailor described them. They simply moved the remaining food sources from the boat to their makeshift camp on the beach. Despite being surrounded on seemingly all sides by an unidentifiable fungus, they kept themselves alive by fishing and making do. How they did this, I have no clear clue, but I am thoroughly impressed by their shared survival skills and drive. The sailor did not seem to share my enthusiasm. They continued, growing more chilled by the words they spoke as they got further into the recounting. According to the sailor, the man soon discovered that his stranded companion had a spot of mold growing on her hand that would come back no matter what they did. Then he too began to show signs of mold growth on himself. In another display of immense strength, the two decided to not seek help or a medical professional, and instead resigned themselves to stay where they were. 
They believed that the mold would take them, and they didn't want to risk spreading it to others. Again, I have to point out the impressive courage the sea couple was showing. The sailor continued, They seemed disturbed to share that the man had returned from a fishing trip one day to find his fiancée gorging herself on a chunk of the mold. The temptation to eat it was there, and according to his account, it was delicious and called to be eaten. Despite slowly starving, they told themselves that they would eat no more. Well, it wasn't long until the man was in the fungal forest and took a taste of his own to find it almost euphoric to consume. That was until he found one of the mold-covered trees looked suspiciously human. When he went to inspect, the shambling shape of mold reached out, causing the man to sprint back to camp. It was all mold. It overtook everything, and it was clear that their fate, regardless of their actions, was bleak. I wanted to offer words of comfort to the sailor, but they looked at me with eyes that seemed aged beyond their years. They told me that the man thanked the sailors for the food and wished them well on their trip into the ocean. As he paddled away, the morning sun began to rise, and finally the sailors caught a glimpse of what the fog had been hiding. The man who had spoken to them was nothing but a mass of gray mold, barely imitating a human form. There was no certain break between the assumed hands of the shape and the start of the oar handles. It was all one awful amalgamation, paddling off into the morning sun and towards a future that would end in nothing but overgrowth and desolation. That was all they saw in their sail that was worthy of any note, and noteworthy it was. My curiosity took the better of me, and I blurted out a request to try and track down this island and lagoon. I mean, surely there was something worth investigating there. That or there's some ghastly grey creature paddling about in the ocean, spreading some sort of tale of woe, which is equally as tantalizing of a story. When I said this, the sailors' eyes widened further, and they stood up with a start, shaking their head. Apparently it's against some sailor code to ask such a thing of someone. I had to apologize and make a promise that I would ask no such thing of them in seriousness again. Which I did, of course. But I oh so want to send an expedition to that place and take a sample of this mold. What secrets could lay on that island? What else does that voice in the mist have to say? And, I mean, was that voice in the mist ever really there? Or was it a trick by the fog and the starless sky? Were the sailors' perceptions played by with the moon and the clouds? Either way, I fully believe that I should be able to convince a scientist to go out into the ocean to discover some mold that overtakes everything and would threaten to end life as we know it. Uh, I mean, isn't that what science is for? I, I, I don't know. I, I went to art school. Or perhaps some things are better left untouched. That sense seems to be the one that gets us into the most trouble, anyhow. It is the one that reveals the truth most often. Sights and sounds can lie, but to trick touch, one must be crafty. I think of all we've gathered today, you must understand there are things in this world that are beyond normal perceptions. The world is much stranger than we know it to be. All we must do is maintain a determination to have it open itself up for us, and a knowledge that our senses may lie. But perhaps it's in those lies that the truth makes itself known. What if every time we must question ourselves, we are really discovering a previously hidden aspect of our reality. Would you call yourself and your beliefs into question? There are places where little truths about this world as we know it slip through the cracks and beckon us to think a little harder and warp what we thought was the truth. They may leave us cracked ourselves, but is knowing not the goal in the end? Or is blissful ignorance the better path? Would you rather our senses lie and keep us safe? or tell the truth and reveal a world much darker and stranger than you previously thought. It's no secret 
that I wish to pry open all the little cracks that the world has to offer. In doing so, I may just rupture the fabric of reality, but that is my cross to bear. And isn't it a fun one? <laughs> huh. As I guide you into the blossoming night and leave you to your thoughts, I have one more message for you. Nadia would like me to remind you to check us out on all podcasting platforms and listen to all past episodes. If you've missed them or would like to re-listen and get reintegrated with all we've reported on so far. Channel Vale, that's Vale spelled V-E-I-L, in case you were confused, is now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's all thanks to Nadia and her technological know-how. Yes, Nadia, I told them it's all your work. You can go back to your desk now. No need to stand at the window and gesture at me. You're the one making me talk to you on air. It's it's not my fault. Ah, <clears throat> uh, I hope you'll return to hear my voice live again next week. Broadcasting, as always, from Chicago's underground, this has been Channel Vale. Today's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and The Eyes by Edith Wharton, as well as The Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson. I've been Peyton Zignego, letting the veil between you and the world of the unknown once again slide back into place. For now. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>